If you are in Acts chapter 28, follow along with me starting at verse 11 as we uh, hear the word of the Lord for this morning. Remember, Paul had crash landed on an island called Malta, south of Sicily. Okay, and so after three months there, starting in verse 11, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Phlegium. And after a day of south, um, after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petuli. And there we found the brothers and invited to, uh, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet on us. And seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came up to his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray before we examine this. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word. You have given it to us in a language that we can understand, the language of the people. Lord, these principles that were so precious to the reformers that 
that a mere man could stand up without the credentials of Rome and declare the word of God to people in every corner of every town who would come and listen, that your word would reach the heart and transform it and cause it to turn that we might be healed, Father. Lord, this wonderful knowledge we have of Christ, we pray would be enlarged among us this morning and even would spill out from this place into the streets of Smith Falls and Perth and Carlton Place, Kempville, Oxford Mills, and everywhere in between, Lord. Uh, we are grateful that you've assembled us this morning for the purpose of being built up as the church, as your uh, gathered council of priests and kings and prophets, Lord, that we would come together to be edified and to acknowledge Jesus Christ and to go from this place uh, being equipped to do the work of the ministry, Father, each one having a different calling. So we thank you for this opportunity. Now, Lord, awaken our minds and hearts and ears to perceive what is being said by you, Lord, that we might turn and be healed and acknowledge Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are finishing up Acts this morning. It's uh, been a great journey. I forgot to check the first date of Acts. Um, bonus points if you remember this morning what the first message in Acts was. Probably none of you have that on hand. Uh, but it's been a year or two. I can't remember. But uh, we're, we're grateful to be coming to its conclusion and to look ahead to our next preaching book. Um, how many of you have heard of the book of, what's the date? Sunday, October 16, 2019. It's only been a year? Okay. Sunday. Thank you, Wendy, who keeps a journal. It's been a, basically exactly a year and two weeks. Yeah, that's wonderful. And um, that is bonus points. I, I did promise you bonus points. Um, how many have heard of the book of Habakkuk? How many of you would pronounce it? Just by a show of hands, Habakkuk. Who would say Habakkuk? Oh, I'm so alone on that. Okay, so we're going to go with Habakkuk as a pronunciation uh, by unanimous decision. I was uh, debating that matter with Shannon this week, and I was certain that I was correct. Uh, don't tell her that I just took a poll and I'm literally wrong by unanimous consent. So we're going to, we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk next week for a number of weeks. It's a short book. It's only three chapters. But that's going to be our uh, prelude to the book of Romans. So it's going to be a wonderful time in the scriptures for the next uh, quite some time, uh, Lord willing. So looking forward to that. But Acts, we want, to really, we want to really finish with a strong understanding of the book of Acts today. We won't be back in this book as a church until some of your children are preaching it. Um, there's a lot of book to cover in the Bible, and so we won't be back here for some time. So we really want to go away grasping the book. What was the book meant to communicate to God's people for 2,000 plus years as it was written by Luke? It's actually one of the greatest historic documents ever written, Bible or not. Did you know that? The book of Acts is regarded by secular scholars outside of the church as one of the greatest documents ever penned. It contains some of the most accurate and reliable information from a historic standpoint from a geographic standpoint and maritime standpoint, from a theological standpoint, from the standpoint of understanding missions, ancient customs, and governments as well. 
This book covers a tremendous breadth of information that we would otherwise just not have from the first century. Paul said in one of his later letters, I, like a master builder, laid the foundation regarding the church. That foundation is chronicled for us in the book of Acts. That's what the book is about. It's about the foundation of the church being laid. We see in the book of Ephesians that God gave many gifts. This is as well as in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, that there are many gifts given to the church and that the apostles and the prophets constituted the foundation of the church. So I've discussed this before, but a foundation is only laid once. Paul would say that the foundation was laid with Christ as the cornerstone. That cornerstone is the reference point from which you lay off all the other walls. There's a, an elevation set by the cornerstone. The parameters of the building are laid by the cornerstone. And the foundation is laid out with reference to that cornerstone. The book of Acts is that foundation being laid. It's like watching the concrete go into the forms. And they are set, Paul says, like a master builder, like a guy who gets on site and knows exactly where everything goes. He has a scope of the whole plan and he follows it well. And there are no uh, repairs that need to be made. I've seen foundations laid that were out about two or three inches over the span of the building. And that's a lot of work once the concrete sets. It was not so in the book of Acts. The foundation of the church is built on a right understanding of Jesus Christ, which was essential to establish in that first century where there were a lot of rumors that went around about who Christ was and what happened to him, why he died, what happened to him after he was killed, whether or not he came back to life. There was a lot of misinformation going around. And so the truth about Christ was critical to get set in stone in the early days of the church, which is why God empowered not only the disciples to become apostles, but he appointed Paul specifically as probably the most prolific and effective evangelist and church planter and preacher in the history of the church. There's no question that Paul becomes the central figure besides Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. And it concludes here with God's instrument who was selected, as we know, on the, on the road to Damascus. He was called God's instrument, the instrument of Jesus Christ. And we have this instrument draped in chains in the final scene in the book of Acts. You would think we would see maybe the instrument being put up on, you know, the ancient pedestal equivalent to, you know, the president of the United States, that if, if God's missionaries were really truthful that they would gain a following and an influence that would go you know well beyond what they could have expected and yet here we have paul in chains jesus said i must show him how much he must suffer for my kingdom and oddly enough the pat the whole book finishes it concludes with a verse from isaiah chapter 9 describing the unbelief of a people it's not exactly the triumphalistic, you know, over-realized eschatology of, you know, sort of everything was going right and everybody accepted Christ. The whole book of Acts concludes with this notion from Isaiah describing why Israel rejected Christ. 
It's an odd note to finish on. Paul in chains, quoting Isaiah, who is essentially condemning Israel for their unbelief. And this is how Acts finishes. But we can't miss the final sentence where it says that he went on preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Which means that despite Israel's unbelief, the gospel of the kingdom continued to spread. No rejection of Jesus Christ, no opposition to his word would ever slow down the ministry of the gospel. And that essentially is the sentiment that Acts leaves the reader with. That there is no opposition either to the Lord Jesus Christ or to his servants that will slow down or ultimately oppose successfully the ministry of the kingdom. There's a couple familiar themes here that I'm not going to exactly exegete, but I want you to see as repetitive themes in the book of Acts that are present here right in the final chapter. Number one, in verse 15, we see the unity and the encouragement and fellowship among believers across cultures and geographies. Down in verse 15, it says, The brothers were there, and they came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage, especially if you are one like a missionary or if you are engaged in a calling that sort of in, in some way isolates you from others or is maybe more predominantly focused on public ministry for Christ, it can be lonely at times. It can be difficult at times. Even as a Christian in our culture, it can be challenging and it can begin to feel like you are alone. But what does the book of Acts show us over and over and over again? That when the brothers come together, they took courage. That's why meeting for church on Sundays is so key for me. Because I take courage when I gather with God's people. In the same way, whether or not you're rich or whether you're poor or whether you and I have the same job or whether we live in the same town, we understand each other because we have Christ as our common bond. And that is a theme throughout Acts. That if you stopped in a town and there was a Christian church there, you got together with them. It's like if you go on a road trip and you stop in at a real Bible-believing evangelical church and you're just received, you're just loved because of Christ. And that's a great theme that Acts reminds us of. Verse 17, we see this repetitive theme that there is suffering and trials that accompany the work of the ministry. Verse 17, Paul says, gathering them together, I had done nothing wrong. And I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem. Remember, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem when he just went to worship. He just went to bring alms to Jerusalem. He meant to bring them an offering to the Christian church of money. And he was in the temple paying his ceremonial dues, and he was arrested. He didn't do anything wrong. This is, again, typical. Christ said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Christ was ultimately unjustly crucified. The same thing accompanies his servants. And we see that again throughout the book of Acts. And so we should not lose hope or become discouraged or despondent when we face trials as Christians. Paul said of himself and his apostles, we are the scum of the earth. Are you sad because people don't elevate you and think you're the most important person in your social circle? Paul said, we're the scum of the earth. Don't be surprised when you're treated like it. For we are seated in heaven with Christ even now. And so the book of Acts reminds us of that reality as we walk through this life. 
Verse 23, here's a huge theme that we see over and over in the book of Acts. We see preaching Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. I would say that it's true that for at least, at least the first 20 to 25 years of the early church, no sermon was preached that did not originate from the Old Testament. Did you know that? Imagine you belong to the first century church and you're saying to your pastor, you know, could we have something from the Old, from the New Testament? Like all this Old Testament stuff is a little heavy. They didn't have a New Testament for 20, 25, 30 years, depending on when Paul wrote the first epistle. Or James actually might have been one of the first as well. So every sermon that, that expounded who Christ was began in the Old Testament. Peter's first sermon to the Jerusalem church was from Joel chapter 2. Stephen, in his humongous sermon in the book of Acts before he was stoned, preached the, almost the whole history of Israel that culminated in Jesus Christ. The church is built upon the truth and the history in the Old Testament. And so demonstrating who Christ was to the Jews depended incredibly on getting a clear understanding of the Old Testament, which is why now we don't look at the Old Testament with foggy minds and think, what can this possibly mean? We look at the Old Testament with the knowledge and revelation of Christ, and we understand it in its clarity. And Kevin pointed out to us that, you know, uh, there's foreshadows to Judas and Christ's persecution and a lot of Christian doctrine about the nations growing in, in their knowledge of Christ. That's all included in the Old Testament. And Roland reminded us that the coming of the king was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so that theme we see down here repeated in verse 23, that this is an ongoing practice of the Christian church is to understand the Old Testament, not to apologize for it, not to dig our heads in the sand and pretend it's not there, but to understand it in light of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we see a, the, the, the most tragic theme, perhaps, of Israel's rejection of her Messiah. This theme is repeated over and over and over again. Paul is pursued from town to town by Jews who hated the preaching of Christ. We see that the Christian church faced persecution in Jerusalem, that the Sanhedrin and that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem cracked down hard on the Christian church. The majority of Christian persecution in the first century came from the synagogue and from the temple. We know probably in our minds that Rome was the, you know, the great persecutor of the Christian church. And Rome did horrific things to the church, but that was not till later. The theme of persecution began from the Jews who rejected Christ against her bride. And so that theme we see again, and the book really concludes with this theme. So the, what we want to look at here and what I want to focus on is Paul's final appeal. These are his final words that we have recorded in the book of Acts and what he was trying to do and what he did and what he outlined in this final appeal and what we can take from that. And so number one, Paul's appeal, remember he's in Rome now, he's finally made it to Rome. And the first people he calls are the Jewish leaders. This was just so typical for Paul. He called what he called his kinsmen. He understood the Jews. He grew up in their culture. He grew up with their texts. He grew up with their pressures. He grew up with their disciplines. He grew up with the, the Jewish law. He understood the Jews. And so even after he said, I will no longer go to the Jews, he still did it very often in practice. Officially, his ministry had sort of gone to focus on Gentiles, but Paul still 
called the Jews. And in the book of Romans, we learn that Paul ached for what he called his kinsmen. They were like his brothers. And it killed him to see them rejecting Jesus Christ. We may know that the, the most painful thing that we can have as a family member or somebody we love very dearly reject Jesus Christ that we have that we have put him forth and we have witnessed and we have shared the hope of Christ to somebody. It's the most painful when it's a family member. And Paul felt that about all of the Jews. He considered them his brethren, his brothers, his spiritual family. And so he knows that his time is coming to an end. He wrote in the book of Timothy that my time is short. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He knew Rome was his final stop. And so when he got there, he called to himself the Jews and he says, listen, I'm not here because I broke any laws. It's like calling his lawyers to himself like one last time. Like you have to understand I am not a criminal. And so he calls him and he says, hey, can I get a meeting? Can we rent out a conference room? And I just want to go through the doctrine of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ. I want to teach you guys who Jesus Christ is. I don't want you to see me on trial and hear the rumors about me and just believe them. Paul says, I want to teach you for myself who Christ is and what I have been teaching. And really the heading of this part of his appeal is the hope of Israel. He says, the reason I'm calling you is because I am imprisoned for the hope of Israel. Now, what does that mean? What is the hope of Israel? Why didn't he say, I'm on, I'm in, on trial here for the hope of the world? I mean, Christ is the hope of the world, is he not? Why did Paul say, I am on trial for the hope of Israel? And what did Israel hope and what was Paul saying had been fulfilled? What was Paul saying about his message that was fulfilling some, some latent hope that they had had? And I would say probably the single best place to look for that, to understand what exactly did this people have in mind when they thought of a future hope. We need to look at the book of Ezekiel. And you can go there if you like, Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37 is probably the most vivid picture that we have. I should have put a bookmark in. I cannot find it. There it is. Ezekiel 36 contains probably the most um, clear declaration of the new covenant, which was what God was going to do for Israel, which was to put a new heart in them and write his law on their hearts. And he was going to give them a spirit. And then after he promised that covenant to them, he gave Isaiah, or sorry, Ezekiel, a vision called the Valley of Dry Bones. And this is to get you in the mindset of an ancient Jew who was thinking about the future of his nation, the future of his people. What's it going to look like? He would think, book of Ezekiel, this is what God promised to us. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel 37, 1. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Not a lively place. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. These were old bones. There was no life in them. They were dead. There was no, there was no feature of life in any sense. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? 
That's a rhetorical question. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel is wise and says, oh, Lord, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and I will clothe you with skin and put breath in you and you should live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound. What was that sound? Behold, it was a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Think back to Genesis chapter one, when Adam was formed, but there was not yet breath in him. Verse nine. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man. And say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, who is this army? Who is it? All you have to do is read the next verse. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope was lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. What did Israel say when they woke up? Our hope was lost. We were dead. We were cut off. We had abandoned the Lord, and we had died on account of our own sin. And what did God say to Ezekiel? Prophesy to them, speak my word to them, and they will come to life. What was the hope of Israel? When Paul said, I am in these chains because of the hope of Israel, what was he saying? That vision that God promised to you has come, and it's Christ. What is the, what is the title for Christ given in John chapter 1? He was the word, the word that God spoke to Israel was Christ himself who gave them new life. It was Christ who said, you must be not only born once, you must be born again, reborn, come back to life by the breath of my spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the spirit blows where it will, just like the wind. It's all from the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, the four winds coming and giving life to the whole house of Israel. Now that phrase is key because the whole house is not just those born as a Jew. We're going to see at the end of this sermon that the whole house is comprised of many who were not born into Israel. And so what is the hope of Israel? It's that they would come to life and be reconciled to God and receive the promise of the new covenant, that their heart would be made a heart of flesh and begin to obey him and walk in his way. And so their hope was revival. It was purity. It was obedience. 
and it was blessing once and for all. This is what Israel was waiting for, that they would be revived finally and be made obedient and they would be brought into their land and they would know that the Lord was their God. They wouldn't have amnesia about who God was. They wouldn't be idolaters anymore. They wouldn't worship the gods of the cultures. They would worship the Lord God alone because they would know that he was the one who brought them back to life. That was their hope. So what explains the chains? Why on earth would Israel put him in chains for repeating this hope? John chapter 1, as we looked at a few years ago, reminds us that when the light came and testified about the darkness, the darkness hated the light. That's why Paul's in chains. Because when Christ came and exposed their dark deeds in Israel, they hated Christ. And so they hated his messengers. And so Paul is in chains because of the hope of Israel. Because the hope of Israel did not just bring dry bones back to life. He first exposed the deadness of the bones. He first exposed that they were dead, that they were spiritually bankrupt, dead, dry bones. They weren't even connected as skeletons. The rattling was the forearm joining with this part, whatever that is. It was the bones coming together for the first time. There was no semblance of humanity before Christ. No semblance of a human being as God had determined it. And so when God came in his spirit, he remade humanity in the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. The problem is that that requires the exposing of the deadness, which is what Christ did. He said, on the outside, you're like whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. And those who would not accept that could not receive that hope, could not receive that renewal that was promised to Israel. And so Paul appeals to them saying, look, I'm chained up for this hope. I don't have much time left. You need to hear about it. And so number two in Paul's appeal, what does he do? He teaches them the scriptures. He teaches them the scriptures from the Old Testament. We've heard this many times before. As I said, it's a familiar theme. But Paul explains the Old Testament to the people who knew it best. They knew Moses and the prophets. We see that in the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry as well, right? They're always criticizing Jesus for not knowing the Old Testament well enough, which is, I would say, ironic. They're always saying, he must not understand, you know, what the rules are. And Christ would say, no, you don't understand who God is. You don't understand the God who wrote these. And so this idea of preaching Christ from the Old Testament is not a new, you know, reformed idea. This has been happening since Jesus preached to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? It says he opened up to them the Old Testament. And over this, you know, eight-hour or 12-hour walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Jesus explained the Old Testament, showing that he was the one that it prophesied about. Christ has always been in the Old Testament. It's not a new thing. It's not a novel idea that we just think is pretty cool here at Evergreen. We think it's the very essence of what the Bible is. We see all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 that God promised the child of Eve would crush the serpent's head, right? After there was enmity between the snake and, the, and man, God said, Eve will have a child, and that child will crush the head of the serpent. We see that fulfilled in the seed of Eve being Christ, who would crush Satan on the cross. 
We see that Abraham was promised a seed that would bless all nations, despite the fact that his wife was barren. And we know that that seed was not Ishmael. It was the son of promise, who was Isaac. And through the line of Isaac would come the tribe of Judah. And from Judah would come the line of the tribe of Judah, born to a virgin Mary, who would be that seed promised to Abraham, who would bless all the nations. We also see that Moses was promised that a prophet just like him would come to Israel. But it wouldn't be a prophet who was on top of a mountain surrounded by thunder and lightning and terror. It would be a prophet that Israel could approach. We know that that was Christ who was came to us just like a man, draped in humble flesh that he was not anything to look at, fulfilled the second Moses who would fulfill the, the law perfectly. We see that David was promised that a king like him would come, and Christ came as a king indeed, the son of David, occupying the long-abandoned throne of his father, never to be dethroned. Colossians 2.9 simply says, In him the fullness of God dwells bodily. And so if you think that the Old Testament is a book about God and the New Testament is a book about Jesus, you don't understand the Bible. It's The New Testament says when Jesus came, the fullness of God as depicted in the Old Testament, dwelled in bodily form. Christ was the image of the invisible God who could not be approached because of his unapproachable light was manifest to us in Christ. Christ is the God of the Old Testament, made flesh, begotten as the Son of God. And so Paul is teaching this to his Leaders, to these leaders of the Jewish people saying, please don't misunderstand the Old Testament. I was just reading through Acts chapter 8 with my kids. We've been going through that at dinner time. And the most profound part of Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 8 is when he says, he goes over Moses. And when Moses came back to the people of God, after God had called them, the people of God said to Moses, who put you in charge of us? What a terrible, terrible mistake to reject Moses, who would eventually free them from Egypt. But what Stephen was saying to the Jews there was, it would be way worse for you to reject the second Moses. It would be far more disastrous for you to reject Jesus Christ. So what Stephen was saying was, don't, mis don't make the same mistake that our forefathers did when they rejected Moses. Don't make that mistake with Jesus. He is the final word from God. There will be no more chances after Christ. He is God's final word. You need to cling to him. He's the last train leaving the station. There'll be no more new covenants. There'll be no more new revelation. There'll be no more new creation after him. He is it. He is the image of God dwelled in bodily form. This is the essence of pleading from the Old Testament to receive Christ. That everything the Old Testament was working toward has culminated in him. And there is nothing else to find. There is nothing beyond that. Christ, the revelation, the final revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says it the best in any place in scripture. Long ago, in many times and ways, God spoke through the prophets. And now he has spoken in Christ. That's it. It's like two pages of the same book. He spoke in one way here. And now he's spoken in Christ there's no more pages. 
That's the full revelation of God. And thanks be to God that we have it and we know it. Jesus is God's final act of redemption. And so Paul is using this opportunity to say to the Jews, don't miss it. Don't miss Christ. Do not reject him. Do not push him aside like your forefathers did Moses. It's a big mistake. And so Paul teaches from the scriptures. And then finally we see this theme tragically repeating Israel's rejection. Israel's rejection. Now, we, we saw that the Christian church was chiefly persecuted by the Jews in the book of Acts. Israel was not passively disinterested in Jesus. It wasn't like they were, you know, he's an interesting guy, but we're, he's just not our flavor. They were active in his crucifixion, and they were active in pursuing and silencing his messengers. They actively hated Christ and all that was coming from his church. The question of why, I think, you know, we've dealt with that previously, about their deeds being exposed and the type of power that they wanted from Christ and didn't get and so forth. So we're not necessarily going to cover the why of the rejection, but what we want to see is the fact that it was and how God set that up and the fact that God had prophesied through the prophet Isaiah that Israel would do this. Now, what we need to recognize is that the Jews' rejection of Christ was not a mystery to God. It was not a surprise to God. In fact, it was a tool that God would use to launch the greatest global spiritual revival in the history of the world. Let me say that one more time for you. When Israel rejected her Messiah, it launched, it literally launched the greatest global spiritual revival in the history of mankind. The vision of the Valley of Dry Bones began to be applied to nations who had never heard of Ezekiel, who had never heard of the atoning sacrifice of a lamb, who had never heard of the Exodus and the Red Sea. They'd never heard of Joshua and Canaan. And suddenly the Valley of Dry Bones was taking place in places like Afghanistan, before it was called that, or the, the Far East in, in China and in as far north as Russia and all the way to South America when missionaries reached there. It began to take place in places that spoke languages other than Hebrew. The Valley of Dry Bones began to revive all of humanity. But this didn't happen until after Israel rejected her Messiah. And so Paul, it says that they, some believed... Verse 24, it says, some were convinced by what he said, but others missed it. They disbelieved. They walked away saying, no, this is not our Messiah. It says, disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. I haven't been able to do this yet, but they basically walked out on Paul when he dropped this part of his sermon. I mean, they were with him, it says, all day. And when he came to Isaiah chapter 9, they left. They didn't want to hear anymore. What does it say? Go to this people and say, you will hear, but never understand. Paul preaching looked at them and said, you are hearing, but you are not understanding. Your disbelief is evidence that you do not get it. You are not smarter than Christians because you have rejected the Christian message. How often are Christians intimidated by the intellectual opposition to Christ in our culture? Whether it's cosmological or you know, evolutionary 
um, bi bio biology or whether it's astronomy, all these different things and philosophical arguments against God. And we become intimidated by the opposition to God, to Jesus Christ. What does God say about that? Does God think that he's been erased by lofty ideas raised against him? He says, no, you're hearing, but you don't understand. If you reject the gospel, you have not understood who I am. But this is specifically to Israel. Go to this people and say, you will hear, but you will not understand. You will see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their senses have just be, have dropped. They are not taking in what God is revealing. And their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. So what is God saying about Israel here? When Christ came, he did not come as a spirit being, right? He came and he turned water into wine that they drank. Jesus was a real guy doing real things. He fed people's stomachs with his bare hands. Okay? He stopped the waves on the ocean by the word of his mouth. He was a real person doing real work in physical creation. The things that he did could be perceived with the ears he preached. You could see with your eyes that water had indeed been transformed to wine. You could even taste that wine and say, this is the better wine. You could see his miracles. You could see Lazarus coming out of a tomb. In other words, when Israel first met their Messiah, there was, he was plain. He worked in broad daylight. He did not hide his works in a special corner. He did everything openly. <clears throat> And yet they did not understand it. They interpreted it wrong. They rejected Jesus Christ because why? Not because they didn't see. Friends, physical evidence will not convert people whose hearts are dull. Did you know that? You need not show people miracles. Israel is the greatest proof. They had the Son of God walking among them and they rejected him. You do, need, you do not need signs and wonders to convert people. Their hearts need to be transformed by the hearing, by the prophecy of the word of God, like Ezekiel 37. The miracle is when God converts them. Did you notice that in Ezekiel 37? Ezekiel didn't have to do anything fancy to get the bones to come back to life. All he had to do was speak. It was God who did the miracle after, and it was bringing dead people to life. That's what conversion is. The miracle is when somebody responds to God and believes. That's the sign and wonder that points to the legitimacy of Jesus Christ in our day. And so what was Israel's problem? Their hearts were dull. They were not interested in God. Though they say they loved God, they did not. They loved themselves and they loved what God could do for them. They did not love God. And so when God's servant came, they rejected him. Jesus used this very passage to explain why he taught in parables. The disciples said, Jesus, why are you teaching us everything in these almost riddles? And Jesus said, because it's for you who have been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to these people, they will not understand. And he quotes Isaiah 6. That they will not listen. They will not hear. This is for those who would believe. They will hear the parable and they will accept Jesus Christ. They will accept my authority. 
And so the promise of Abraham and the vision of the bones extends to people beyond the bounds of Israel, beyond the land of Canaan, beyond the promised land. There's that parable where Jesus, where the, their master throws a great feast and he sends out all the invitations and the servants come back and say, everyone was too busy. What should we do? And he says, go to the byways, go to underneath the bridges, go to the homeless shelters, go to the fields and invite anybody who will come. That's us. We are those who were not in the original list. We were not born, uh, unless you have Jewish background, and I apologize if I'm genericizing, but most of us are born outside of the covenant of Israel. But because Israel rejected, God said, then go invite everybody else. We are the ones who didn't deserve to be invited. We were the ones who had no hope. We were without God in the world and distant from his promises. And because Israel rejected, we have been invited to the feast. There's nothing we've done to deserve God's mercy, to deserve the invitation of the gospel. Paul goes on preaching to the kingdom unhindered for the rest of his time. And I want to end with this theological note from Romans. Because this is how the book of Acts closes. And I think Romans ties this up the best for us. And I think gives us the most potent way of understanding God and in fact turning us to worship him in greater reality. What is the end game of this rejection? What did, what did this cost Israel? Essentially, that for the remainder of the bulk of human history, Israel would be on the outside looking in when it comes to spiritual revival. There are many Jews who have come to Christ. Paul said, I'm evidence that God has not rejected his people because I know Christ. But as a nation, as a people group, they would be largely on the outside looking in on the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. They would see other nations, Brazil and Portugal and China and even Canada and the U.S. and Iceland. They would see other nations being revived under God's covenant to Israel. Wow, that's insulting. And do you know why God did this? And this is why we have to not take lightly our opportunity to believe. The fact that you have received the gospel from God, do not take it for granted. This is why Romans 11 warns us that this reality of the rejection of Israel is to take note of God's kindness to us, but God's severity at the same time. God is severe. He's kind, but he is severe. Romans chapter 11 goes on to say, by their sin, which is Israel's sin of rejecting Jesus, by their sin, salvation has come to Gentiles. Next verse, to make them jealous. God is reviving the world in order that Israel would look on and become jealous of our relationship with God. We are part of God's plan to revive his original national people. Did you know that? God's grace to you, though it is a tremendous grace, is also an act of grace to Israel that it might provoke them. It might provoke them to feeling on the outside. And so what, is, what does the Bible say to Gentiles like us? Do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, meaning nat natural Israel. Don't be arrogant toward them. It is not you who support the roots. It is the roots who support you. It is the old ways of God revealed in the Old Testament that support our faith, not the other way around. 
We are little tiny branches on the end of the tree. We're not the tree trunk or the roots. We've been added in later. You will say branches were broken off that I might believe. Quite right, they were broken off in unbelief. But you stand in your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold, this is the verse, the kindness and severity of God. So recognize, friends, that you have been invited into the gospel by God's grace. And it was Israel's rejection that prompted the messengers to go to the whole earth to reach us. God sent his Messiah to the Jews and they rejected him. And it plunged Israel into generations of darkness. That's, that's how we can understand Israel today. They have rejected their Messiah largely, although there were many who were in Christ. So the hope of Jesus Christ came to us, the Gentiles. And so my friends... Understand that prophecy in Acts and recognize that when you see and perceive and hear the word of God and the works of Jesus Christ, respond with your heart, turn to Christ and be healed. That's the design of the message of the gospel. That's what Acts leaves us with. That it is a terrible thing to reject Jesus Christ when you have known him and when you have heard of him. God is severe with those who would reject Jesus Christ, but he is kind and he is merciful to those who would receive him. His mercy is new every morning and is never changing and never failing. So I just think this would turn our hearts to worship and love God. That's what Acts is about, is to be grateful that the message has come to us undeserving Gentiles. Let's close in prayer, and we're going to remember the Lord's table uh, and his covenant to us. Father, thank you for your word.